Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Brenda Mainwaring, the President and CEO of the Iowa West Foundation, one of the region's largest philanthropic organizations. In the show, Mainwaring talks about going from cultural anthropologist to CIA analyst, lessons learned for leadership and life, and the importance of people and philanthropy in developing thriving communities. When I um, was announced as a new CEO, first woman to run the Iowa West Foundation, I, and I said, it's not that I'm the first woman, it's that I'm the first Council Bluffs native to run the Iowa West Foundation. That's the important thing. Brenda Mainwaring is president and CEO of the Iowa West Foundation, one of Iowa's largest private foundations having awarded more than $500 million in grants since its inception. Mainwaring started her professional life as an intelligence analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, specializing in demographics and cultural dynamics. She advised elected, appointed, and military officials during the first Gulf War, the Yugoslav conflict, and the military action in Haiti. Mainwaring has 30 years of experience in government and public relations, and regulatory matters, including executive positions at Union Pacific Railroad, communicating through crises that included Hurricane Harvey, contentious layoffs and facility closures, and the COVID pandemic. Her undergraduate and graduate degrees are in cultural anthropology from the University of Iowa, where she served as a teaching and research fellow. Brenda Mainwaring, welcome to Lives. Thank you, Stuart. I am so pleased to be here. The question I wanted to start with is about community. Hard as it may be to imagine a child thinking of community in such abstract terms, what were you thinking about community as a child? I think you're right that children don't think about community. You, you just exist. It just is. It's the people around you and the people whose door you go knock on to sell the candy that your grade school tells you you have to sell and uh, the uh, family that you visit, whether they're near or far. Um, I think children have a sense of community as the people that exist in their realm. And maybe that's something that we lose the older we get. We think of community in more defined terms. And, you know, it's, it becomes geographic instead of people-based. I think that's a really important observation. Who, who were the people in, in your childhood? I grew up just outside Council Bluffs suburban, but probably a little bit more attending rural. Um, I had a total of 12 kids in my class in elementary school, six boys, six girls. So not a lot of neighbors. Most of my time was spent out of doors, going in search of yellow violets in the springtime and um, playing in a muddy creek whenever possible. So, but we had a, a small trailer park. And so I was able to connect with some of the people who lived there, which were somewhat transitory. And so it was an opportunity to get to know a fairly wide variety of people, which was a little bit unusual for growing up in Council Bluffs. I feel like it's much smaller than I imagine for some reason. For some reason, I had imagined that you um, raised in a, in a slightly larger, more urban setting. Uh, I didn't realize that as it were, the landscape of, of your uh, childhood was 
relative com- compact and, and suburban slash rural? It was very compact. We had uh, 14 acres and I knew every inch of it. I was a, I was an outdoor kid. I was a country kid. Couldn't wait. I just pestered my parents until well, they would get chickens, which were not quite as much fun as I thought the chickens would be. Um, one of our neighbors had sheep. We ended up having horses. And so it was sort of a, uh, my, both of my parents grew up on farms in Kansas. And um, I think if you were to ask them at the time what they most regretted giving up, it was the freedom of being farmers. And so they were their own little uh, country farmers to some extent. And I um, definitely absorbed that. Your parents, were they farmers for their entire lives? My dad would have been very happy being a farmer, but his farmer father said, not going to happen. You go off, you get your degree. And uh, when uh, he was in college, um, the superintendent from Council Bluff Schools came all the way down to Pittsburgh, Kansas to recruit teachers. Uh, My mom was there also, and he said, come along, you can teach as well. And so at the ripe age of, oh, 22-ish, they uh, left Kansas, came to Council Bluffs, and my dad taught in the Council Bluffs school system 35 years, um, a very long, long time. Taught math. My mom, as was uh, typical of the era, as soon as she was visibly pregnant, she was told to go home and uh, be a mom. And so she uh, got back into teaching later in life. Do you have siblings as well? I have uh, one sister and older sister. I'm the only Iowan in the family. I was born in Iowa. So this may be me projecting, but I'm going to imagine you were a curious person interested in the world around you. I was extremely interested in the world around me, but not in the form of human beings because there weren't very, there was no one else my age around would have taken a drive or at least a long walk to get to where other kids from school lived. It wasn't like there was a neighborhood school. Um, It was a little country school that doesn't even exist anymore. And so when I wanted something to entertain me, I found a book or more likely I went outside and found something engaging in the world around me. I refer to myself as an introvert. That's not really true. I just am far more comfortable with silence than I am with crowds. Which makes me want to say thank you then for being on the show. (laughs) Oh, I love individual conversations, exploring the world with with one-on-one. That's super rewarding and very fulfilling. Um, Put me in a crowd and I will huddle in the corner if I can. Before we talk about why you studied in that field, could you just share what is cultural anthropology? From my perspective... Cultural anthropology is really thinking about why people behave the way they do from a societal perspective. You know, you have psychology, which is what's in your mind causing you to do things. You have sociology, which is sort of what are the pressures in your immediate environment that make you think about doing certain kinds of things. When you get into cultural anthropology, it's more on a cultural level to say, how did the way that you grew up, the world that you grew up in, influence the choices that you make on a daily basis? How is it that our culture we view around us makes us think about things in certain ways? So given that, where did the motivation and the desire to make that the field of study that you went to college to pursue emerge from? Well, as with most 
kids who go to college completely accidentally. I, for most of my life, was going to be a veterinarian. I'm very committed to be a veterinarian. And um, through um, my susceptibility to peer pressure in high school, decided, oh, I should be a doctor because that's more important than being a veterinarian. So went off to University of Iowa instead of Iowa State, took the uh, pre-med course of study and did not find it awesome. And so my, my poor advisor, trying to figure out something that I wanted to do, said, well, was there any class in high school you enjoyed? And I said, well, I wrote this paper on Charles Darwin. That was kind of interesting. And she says, awesome. I'm going to put you in anthropology because she couldn't find anything else to put me in. So accidentally ended up in an anthropology class and somehow found it compelling in the way of offering an opportunity to understand why people do certain things. Do you look back on that and have any reflection that it was the right or wrong field of study? I mean, do you ever replay that moment and think, oh, it should have been a different field of study? There was actually a time in my um, adult life, in my 30s, I suppose, when I said, you know, I really wish I'd done that veterinarian thing. And I was at a point in a, in a job that I, I thought, you know, something different might be good. And so I did go back to school and I did take the chemistry and the physics, you know, night classes, didn't want to quit my day job, and then got a uh, an amazing opportunity to do something remarkable at the, the job that I was in and had to make a choice. And I committed to the path I was on. Was it the right decision as a 18, 19 year old? Who knows? But it gave me a fascinating life. I would never, I mean, it would have been a completely different path. And uh, I have truly enjoyed the path that I've been on. I think, you know, I started out saying I was really focused on the world, the natural world around me, less the people. And so I think that I kind of needed some way to understand people because it wasn't something that I had really done much as a kid growing up. Um, it gave me an access point to comprehend people in a way that I, as a kid, probably struggled with. So what did you do during your fields of study then? Because by definition, you had to spend time and not only with the books and doing research, but go into the field. And, and you pursued this, I think, into a post-undergraduate, into a so yeah, I have a, um, I have bachelor's and master's in anthropology, um, and I did go on a, an archaeology dig, excruciatingly dull. Some people love it, not my idea of fun, um, so it wasn't going to be archaeology. We were back into cultural anthropology, did a little linguistics, and uh, enjoyed that. Ultimately, my master's thesis was really about how people choose their culture in some ways, as opposed to you can grow up with the culture, but it can also be something that you choose. If you prefer a certain kind of behavior, you can declare yourself to be part of a culture when you didn't necessarily grow up with it. It makes me think about people passing, as it were, for different ethnicities or races um, or cultures. It, it almost feels like there's a psychological element to why people would make that kind of choice to not be in a culture that they were otherwise born into or raised in? Yeah. So I think it's uh, it, it's called cultural acquisition or sometimes a little bit more pejoratively, you know, to, to steal somebody's, to absorb somebody's culture. I, I, this was a long time ago, Stuart, but my recollection of my study at the time was it, it is more of a rejection of what you grew up with. And 
maybe idealistic sense that you can be something different. And so by absorbing somebody else's culture and norms, it is a compliment. It is saying to people of that culture, I appreciate what you do more than I appreciate where I came from. But it is uh, it has some pejorative overtones now about um, cultural appropriation that I think is a little bit misunderstood maybe. Am, am I wrong in thinking that there are elements of the American mythology, the so-called melting pot and a long history of immigration to this country where there is to some degree this uh, philosophy, this ethos around coming to America and acquiring whatever it is that, the, that is the magic of America in people's minds. I think that's that was the origin of America. We collectively clearly have some deep cultural misunderstandings. And the more we revert to our boxes, our cultural boxes, I think the, the more trouble we have with it. Maybe the point is that culture is really amorphous and that you can accept and appreciate and even try to emulate certain features of a culture that you appreciate. A more recent example. So I spent several years, my husband and I spent several years in Houston when I was working for Union Pacific. And Houston truly is a remarkably diverse city and it exists as a diverse city. Not to say they don't have their problems. They certainly do. But my exposure was to a very diverse group of women. We had a very strong women's business network, Latinas and, and these remarkable black women, just powerful, intelligent, engaged women that I learned so much from. When I came here, I couldn't find that when I came back here. And it's, it's missing. It's a lack. It's a, it's something that I wish that existed here. And so, you know, I, I, I have been involved with creating an executive women's group in Council Bluffs and trying to recreate that to some degree. But frankly, we don't have the degree of diversity that lends itself to that. Or certainly, let me rephrase that, because I often say we are a diverse community, but we're not an inclusive community. And so part of it is just bridging those gaps naturally and recognizing the power that comes from different ways of doing things. That's what I miss. And I suppose in some ways you could say that's, you know, the my diving deeply into that, that remarkable group of women in Houston and understanding and learning from them, I suppose you could say was cultural appropriation. Maybe it's just cultural appreciation. How did you go from your studies in cultural anthropology to the CIA. <laughs> um, so my fellowship was a, a PhD track and I was finishing up the master's and thinking, I see a fork in the road here. Um, I can finish with a PhD, but frankly, at that time in the academic world, cobbling together a living wage as a professor was a struggle. And um, I decided I would, I would apply for one job. And if I got the job, that was the path I would take. And lo and behold, off I went to Washington, D.C. upon completion of the master's. And it was a remarkable experience. Washington is a great place to be young. Opportunity to explore so many things. Um, I had a colleague at the agency who 
referred to most analysts as information junkies, um, which I always thought was very accurate. It, they are people who wanted to know everything about everything. And I, um, I found I fit well into that. It was, it was a fascinating experience. What were you doing and how did that relate perhaps to some of the notable, uh, more public, global challenges that we mentioned in your bio? So I was not the only anthropologist at the CIA. There were a few of us there. And the reason for that as a nation, as a world, we are up in each other's business all the time. My role during the, the first Gulf War and Haiti and Yugoslav and all those other places was actually to provide some perspective on the people whose business we were getting into for the first Gulf War, the Kurds were very integral in that particular conflict, and nobody knew very much about them. And so the, the question was, what do they think? How do they behave? What makes them tick? How will they react if we say this versus, you know, should we say that? And uh, I was 25, 26, and so, you know, one of the, you have to be an instant expert, and it was a little intimidating to think that, Somebody was going to take action on an, on an assessment that I made about, well, this is what the culture tends to be. At the same time, I appreciated the fact that they were asking the question and wanted an answer to know what the right thing was. Not to say that they always did it, but there was an appreciation for understanding the consequences of the actions that we as a nation might take overseas. Did that weigh on you? I mean, you talk about being 25, 26, and I mean, we're talking about global conflicts here. I, I just wonder what effect that was having on you to be making these um, analyses. It should have weighed on me more than it did. There is, a, there is massive turnover in organizations like the CIA, and I think one of the reasons for that is um, you start young and naive and full of yourself, and you begin to understand the consequences of your actions, and it begins to weigh on you more and more and more. And the sense that you, you actually do know what you're talking about, and nobody's listening. So I think that's one of the reasons why uh, it's, a, it's a fairly short-lived profession for a lot of people. But I knew, my colleagues knew, that what we did had life and death consequences. You couldn't just be wrong. You couldn't just make a mistake. You had to know what you were talking about. And the other really important thing was you had to know when to say, I don't know the answer to that. Because if you made something up, it mattered. You had to be knowledgeable and also know when you didn't know the answer. That degree of self-awareness, humility, and especially in a Western context, the ability professionally to say, this is something I don't know. These feel like attributes and skills that are pretty rare and to, well, maybe not rare, but, but they're harder to find in this context. And for you to realize and acquire those attributes at that time, it, it feels really quite noticeable. I, I wonder if there's, if you reflect back on that and, and think about those attributes and, and others that you acquired as part of that set of experiences, professionally and personally? Yes. 
there were you had to take a couple of tests to get into the agency. Um, it was a long, multi-month process. And so looking back, thinking, is it something that I had and they saw that in me? Or is it something that I gained? Maybe I had the ability to learn those things. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of reflection about what is that personality type? What is it that I had that allowed me to be successful, to be selected and then to be successful? Part of it uh, is an ability to sort of separate yourself from the situation, to essentially analyze something in the purest possible sense without putting your finger on the scale about what you think is right or wrong. The question was not what's right or wrong. The question was, what is the answer? What is the most likely thing to happen? And so it's a very scientific process in that with no science basis, right? You have no data, you have information, but you're making judgments without your personal filter involved. That's success. What was it then that motivated the transition from the CIA into the for-profit corporate world? So I, I met my husband there. Um, he had a different job there, um, but we had left DC on assignment and uh, it was time to make a decision whether we were going back. And as I said at the outset, DC is a wonderful place to be young. It is not a wonderful place to try to be a grown-up. And we were at a point in our lives where we thought maybe we should try to be grown-ups and made the decision that going back to D.C. was not part of that equation. So uh, that's actually the first time I came back to Council Bluffs. And it was very accidental, but came back here and, and noticed that things were in the process of changing. It has a lot to do with the Iowa West Foundation. I found a job and ultimately... Uh, went to work for Union Pacific and spent 23 years working for Union Pacific, um, the last seven of which were in Houston, and then made the decision again, it was time to come back to Council Bluffs. And so that goes back to the idea of community, making a choice about at points in your life, where do I want to be? Who do I want to be with? What do I want to be surrounded by? And our choice was it would be Iowa and it would be Council Bluffs. I'm wondering what were the considerations that you and your husband were sort of weighing up to make the choice to come back to I, I say if you're really uncertain about what to do, make a decision and then sit with it. And if you rework the question, so you'll know that the answer that you had was you actually knew what you wanted. For us, um, it was family. It was Houston's too big, too hot, too humid. Um, on the other hand, they have a football team, they have a baseball team, they have fabulous concerts, they have amazing restaurants. And so um, it was a great place to be for, for a while. Every place has been a great place to be for a while. But when you think about where is home? Home is the, the things, you know, that's why you started at childhood, right? Because that's where home is. Home is those things, being able to go out and walk in the woods and being able to find a quiet place. And, and I'm a, I, first time we were here, I became a master gardener and uh, I couldn't grow anything in Houston. I take that back. I, lime tree and lemon tree, which I was very excited about, but that does not fill the refrigerator. So um, I wanted to get into gardening again and, and I know how to do that here because it's home. What are some notable moments from 
from your career with Union Pacific that that just stick with you, either because they have some kind of significance to the public or perhaps some um, significance for you? I had some amazing opportunities at the railroad. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm from a railroad family, five generations back. I will say I'm the first girl who worked for the railroad, as some of my aunts made a point of saying. Actually, the first one in management. Um, all of my, my male relatives who worked at the railroad were laborers, um, engineers, train drivers. So my experience was different, and yet um, I actually, when I applied for the job, did not know who I was applying to. It was uh, to do a uh, legislative analyst. Okay, well, I know how to do that. I'm an analyst. I was in D.C. It looks like I just know, you know, I know how to do that. So I applied. When I got the call saying, you got an interview, this is Union Pacific, it was like, yay, because I had such a, a family history um, and such a commitment to the railroad. So thrilled to have the opportunity and sort of made my own way in some uh, in some ways, as I, I think that's the, the way to success in a corporate world. And I, I mentor a lot of people who work for me at the railroad and, and uh, just people who need some guidance. I think being in the corporate world opens up an immense number of opportunities to identify needs, identify your skill set, and create space to do something that serves corporate needs as well as your own. So for me, not too long after I got there, uh, Union Pacific was involved as a supplier to the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. There were a lot of moving parts. I went to my boss at the time and said, you need somebody to manage them at this and it should be me. Okay. So I got to manage our involvement in the Olympics, which was amazing. Running a, the torch relay across several states, got to go to Greece to as a representative of UP to pick up the, the flame uh, along with, you know, 150 of my best friends. But it was just uh, remarkable opportunities. Immediately after that, my boss at the time was complaining about, you know, we've got we've got this great historical collection and we don't have any place we can put it on display. And I was involved with volunteer activities in Council Bluffs trying to save an old Carnegie library and put the two together and said, hey, I got a great place for you. So I was involved with creating the, the Union Pacific Museum in Council Bluffs, also immensely rewarding. Kind of fell into building Kennefick Park with the uh, the um, locomotive exhibits on the hill down there. Similarly, you just see a need and you recognize an opportunity and you leap into it with both feet. Not to say I was always successful. There were a couple things I, I thought I could do or my boss thought I could do that needed a different skill set. But ultimately, as I say, um, as, as time passed, I decided I needed a job with an actual job description. So um, when the opportunity arose to get into uh, public affairs with a new department, I decided that was a great opportunity. And so that really set me off in a different direction with the railroad. It goes back to community. The whole point of public affairs at the railroad was to create a relationship with the thousands of communities that the railroad runs through. Way back... There were depots, there were station agents, they stopped, there were passengers, people engaged with the railroad. When the railroad focused on freight, they didn't stop in, in towns anymore. They just went through and blocked crossings. And so there was a need to develop relationships with those communities. 
that gave me, you know, that took, took me to a new level of what community needs. Not just be a good corporate citizen, but what does this community need in order to be successful? And how can the railroad help achieve that? Because by doing that, by finding common interest, you build the kind of relationship that, that matters. It's not just uh, in name only. It's not, well, I know who to pick up the phone to call if I have a problem. It's let's work together. How did your personal circumstances and your personal interests and personal life change over those 23 years that you were in the corporate world? There's a long pause here because I would say it's, it's not all good news. I think it's very easy to lose yourself in a company like Union Pacific, in any large company where you can give as much as you want um, and sometimes more than you want. It's easy to lose yourself. It's easy to um, become part of a, a cog in the corporate world. I am very focused on the work that I do and that doesn't go well with a situation where they'll take as much as you give. And so um, I would say that the boundaries that need to exist between work and personal life tended to blur. That happens a lot at a place like Union Pacific. It happens a lot at other places. One of the things that I find the most amazing about the generations coming behind us is their ability to maintain what I think is a bright line. They, the next generations, the people who, frankly, who saw their parents blur the line, saw their parents lose themselves in work, don't want to do that. Good on them. The challenge is finding that space between what the business world needs and what the individual needs. We're not there yet. COVID threw us a serious curveball. We're still dealing with trying to figure out, you know, what, what, can you work from home? Who can work from home? How much can you work from home? What are the sacrifices when you work from home? The personal life and to professional life and why ultimately did I say, okay, it's time to move on is because um, at a certain point you say, I, I, need to, I need to find those boundaries again and create some space between being absorbed by my profession or having some sort of a life. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people go through. I know that a lot of my colleagues at the railroad went through it. It's not because it was Union Pacific or because it was the railroad. It's just kind of the nature of that world, that corporate world. I forget when the transition was for you between corporate world and leading Iowa West. It was September of 2020. There's a magic age in the rail industry um, when you secure your pension. And so I hit that magic age. And uh, only a few months after that, I got a call from a headhunter, which was not a normal thing for me. I mean, it happened like twice in my entire career prior to that. And all of a sudden I got a call and I had hit that magic number and the world had kind of my perspective on what I had to do. It changed a little bit. And uh, I had a very different call with that headhunter than I had had previously. Um, brought, brought us back home. It was 
frankly, kind of a dream job. I had always been very connected with Iowa West when I was here as a, a perspective of trying to engage the, them with some of the projects were, that were important to me. And to be able to sit on the other side of the table just seemed like the best possible way to give back to the community that was home. How did the pandemic influence the choice you made about taking on this role and, and then how you hit the ground? So I'm going to go back to what I said earlier about what was what's successful in being somebody who can work for the agency, which is being able to separate yourself from the analysis. Being able to separate yourself from the circumstances of life, to, to make a decision almost in a vacuum. The decision, separate from what's going on with COVID and the, the world that we're inhabiting right now, it won't be permanent. We don't know what's going to happen, but this is not a permanent condition. And the decision that I have to make as a professional is whether this job is the right thing for me to do as a next step in my life. And it was. So honestly, and this will sound ridiculous, COVID had nothing at all to do with my decision. It, it was an environmental factor that was temporary. I do want to ask you, for the benefit of listeners, what is the Iowa West Foundation and what are some examples of the work it's done and, and maybe intends to do? The short version is um, the Iowa West Foundation is a place-based foundation. Um, it is unique in that it is funded because of some decisions that the state of Iowa made back in the 80s about how they would manage gaming. Um, Iowa is the only state in the nation that requires that any sort of gaming gambling license be held by a not-for-profit organization and that a percentage of those revenues be given to a, a not-for-profit organization that will spend those monies in the region. So that was the origin of Iowa West. We still hold the license as the Iowa West Racing Association for Harris and Ameristar and Horseshoe, and we still work very closely with them and, collect, and hold their license and collect some revenues from them. But um, Iowa West Foundation is somewhat unique in Iowa in that for those who remember the Bluffs Run Greyhound track, that was originated by the Racing Association. It was sold to a private entity, and the proceeds from that founded the foundation, created an endowment that we now use as the basis for our contributions in the greater southwest Iowa. So our, our mission um, is to serve Council Bluffs, Pottawatomie County, southwest Iowa, and the regional amenities and organizations that serve the residents of Southwest Iowa. So we do support a lot of work that's done in Omaha that um, we, as a region, share and benefit from. But the primary work that we do is in Council Bluffs, Pot County, and Southwest Iowa. And we range um, education, uh, placemaking, workforce development. Uh, we do some, you know, some mental health things. We do child care support. We, we really range the gamut across um, various programs that support the needs of the community. Are there any personal favorites of yours that would illustrate the work that, that has been done by the foundation? No, I love all of my children the same. <laughs> you know I'm going to edit that out. You can't, you can't be allowed to have that. Um, are there any personal favorites? Um, 
I know this sounds crazy, but I, I don't have personal favorites because I love the fact that the work that we do benefits the community as a whole. And so I think that it all comes back to projects that we do that, that in some way are meaningful to the people who live in the area that we serve. I am a particular fan, this won't surprise you after everything I've told you, of a lot of the conservation work that we do. Um, Hitchcock, Hitchcock Nature Center is uh, in the Lus Hills um, and something that we as an organization have helped to build and helped make it thrive. That's an area that is particularly meaningful to me. But, you know, the fact that several hundred students in Pottawatomie County have been able to get some sort of a degree or a certification through the work that we do has changed lives. It is remarkable to me the, the depth of work and the depth of impact that the Iowa West Foundation has had on the Council Bluffs community. When you talk about spending half a billion dollars over the course of a couple of decades, and for the most part, that was half of what was expended. So we, we give grants that are matches, uh, you know, typically a 50% match. So then you say, okay, well, that's a billion dollars that has been inserted in private foundation money that has helped improve the community. Um, it has made a huge difference in Southwest Iowa. And sometimes people will say money is the answer to solve uh, a society, a community's challenges. But we're talking about a billion dollars, which is pretty substantial. Is it just give more money or is there something else that has to be a factor in a community's success? So I don't have kids. If I were giving kids an allowance, I would want them to earn it. If there's no engagement, if there's no direct engagement with the um, elevation of community, um, it doesn't work. If you think about Pottawamani Arts and Culture um, and the Hoff Center, which is a fabulous renovated old warehouse that's been turned into an art center, artist space, um, performance center, um, bar, restaurant, venue space. Um, that was done with a significant investment from Iowa West Foundation, but it was done because the organizations that were part of the arts, culture, and Council Bluffs came to the Iowa West Foundation to say, we all have these needs, um, we have these common interests, and we, the citizens, the residents, the passionate artists in the community want more. What can you do to help us achieve more? That level of groundswell of support. There are, are people who are committed to this project who will make sure that it is successful. All we're doing is writing a check. That never gets anything done. or doesn't keep things functional. You have to have people who are personally engaged, personally committed to make something out of that. They have to be invested in it. They either have to be working for it, like you're earning your, your allowance, or you have to say, if you will invest in me, I will make this happen. And so those are the kinds of projects that I think are, are truly successful when you have that engagement from the people who are receiving the funds. It's not just writing a check. It's making sure you're doing what the community wants to do and that there's uh, enough people who are committed to it that it has a life of its own. Do you reflect on your position as a visible 
female leader of a large, respected organization and the implications that that might have. So when I um, was announced as a new CEO, first woman to run the Iowa West Foundation, I, and I said, it's not that I'm the first woman, it's that I'm the first Council Bluffs native to run the Iowa West Foundation. That's the important thing. Um, and it is, but both things are important. Um, I am very involved and very committed to elevating uh, women in professional life. 23 years at the railroad, 96% male, and a, an uphill battle to change those numbers. Not because they don't want to, but because of the nature of the business. So I am extremely accustomed to working in a field that is almost exclusively male. I think maybe that gives me a greater appreciation for the diversity of leadership that comes from men and women, from people of color, from all sorts of viewpoints about how do you make good choices when you only have one perspective? Generally, you don't. And so I think that women leaders bring a different perspective. And I think that makes all of us more successful. Do you work according to a a philosophy you've developed about what a good leader is? I hate business books. I hate reading business, you know, business self-improvement books. Just detest it. You know, let me see the executive summary and I'll move on from there. So I don't spend a lot of time with, uh, you know, Dilbert jargonism on the uh, business world. But um, I am very committed to collective decision-making. Um, ultimately, I'm the one responsible but I don't know everything. You know, that's where we started this conversation. I don't know everything, and I need to be honest about what I don't know. That will help me give me all the information. Information junkie, I want to know everything that I can know in order to make a good decision. I know that the decisions that I do make will have consequences, and so they need to be the right ones. I think you should always hire people who are better than you, um, you should hire people who are more talented and more skilled because if you don't, you're just diminishing the value of the organization. I really enjoy um, helping people find their professional path, um, including some people I've worked with over the years who weren't destined to stay working for me, either because they weren't a good fit or because they had aspirations to do something different. Um, and I always try to support that. The more you allow people to give the best of their gifts, the better the organization will be. You've had a long, successful career, and I'm wondering what you regard as the best of your gifts. And I'm curious how you think you've changed. I've learned to listen. I've learned to lift up the ideas of others as opposed to thinking that all ideas have to be mine. I think that I am a collaborator. Um, I do think that I am a good mentor. I guess I say these things because this is what people have said to me, so I'm parroting back what I've heard. But I also know when it's time to be decisive, when it's time for me to say, okay, I appreciate all the input, but this is what we're going to do, and now we're going to roll. We're all going to roll forward on this path. And I'm extremely thorough. I want to know everything that can possibly go wrong. 
and consider all of those options and consider all those threats and then make a decision that will minimize the likelihood that any of those threats will actually happen. You started your career offering insight and opinion about how certain peoples would respond given the context of the, their culture and their world. And at this point in your career, you're in a position to change the context of people's worlds and therefore how people will respond to that situation. And I, I don't know if that's an accurate observation and if it is, how you feel about that, as it were, almost that shift in potential. I think when you say change the perspective, I'd rather say open up the perspective to broaden the awareness of the opportunities that are available, to help people recognize the diversity of opinion that will contribute to better work environment. Um, when, when I, my first day on the job at Iowa West, which was my first CEO role, I mean, I'd always been reporting to somebody else prior to that. Um, my first CEO role, I walked in and I talked about the Avengers, how uh, everybody has a superpower. And equally, there are areas where we all have a blind spot that collectively, by understanding our superpowers and sharing them all, that we leverage to a better place. The question about, you know, do you change the, do you change the environment? I think changing the environment so that people are permitted to have blind spots and they're permitted to acknowledge the superpower of others because their superpower is recognized. It becomes a much healthier workplace. We started our conversation ruminating on what you as a child thought of in terms of community. And I'm now curious about what are your reflections on what community is now and, and what that means to you. Community, I, I, there are so many definitions of community. I mean, it's, um, community is still about people. Um, it is not about geography. You can be a member of a multitude of communities your workplace, um, your hometown, your church, your um, personal definition of, of people who are like you. Um, so we participate individually in a multitude of communities. It's been a very interesting. One of the things that this, that this position has allowed me to do is um, – Marshal resources to understand what the community means in my hometown, in Council Bluffs, you know, for, for decades, for as long as I've been a part of the Council Bluffs community, there's been an underdog mentality, a sort of a, uh, a perception that it's less than others. And yet, last year, when we held what we called Imagine Hours, which was a community coming in to, to talk about first what they love about their community and then what could make it better. The thing that came out over and over and over again was how much people love Council Bluffs and why they love it. It's a small town. Um, they have friends and neighbors. They, um, they can walk down the street and always see somebody they know. Um, 
there is a neighborliness that you can't get in Houston, for example. And it kind of came to a head um, with Max Duggan and TCU in this bizarre way. I don't know Max. I don't know his family. I, I hope to. But um, I jumped right on his bandwagon with everybody else. And the reason for that is because, um, you know, when Max and his family were interviewed for the big football game, he talked about what Council Bluffs meant to him. The grit, determination, hometown, um, pride, and that galvanized community in a way that I hadn't seen in a very long time. And the reason it did was because Max said in a few words what all what everyone felt. This is who we are. This is who Council Bluffs is, and we are lucky to be there. And if you needed proof of that, all you needed to look at was how many times ESPN and the other stations talked about, isn't that awesome that this kid is from this little town that stands behind him and has neighbors and has a hometown friendliness. That's what council bluffs has being in a position at Iowa West to create an environment that reflects that back to my hometown is the best part of, of this job that I have, that I can give something back, not because I can write a check, but because I can reflect back to the community what at an individual heartfelt level you know is there, but you've been told for so long it's not, that you kind of feel beaten down. That's, that's not what this community is. And I can help demonstrate that. I can change like and I can show the community what it is and what it can be and what we have to offer. My guest today has been Brenda Mainwaring, President and CEO of the Iowa West Foundation. Brenda, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stuart. It's, uh, it's a very reflective opportunity. I appreciate it. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.